Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, we're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo dedicates its hallowed halls to one of the era's most remarkable leading ladies, a bright soul with operatic aspiration diverted by the call for that greater institution, the musical theater. Now, now, apologies, of course, to all you opera fans, but in the case of this soul we discuss, I'm sure you can agree this proves a case where opera rightfully passed so that the silver screen could be blessed with the high-quality mark of charm, intelligence, and grace that it so sorely needed. She perfected the world of screwball and dominated the world of drama, and she made sure the screen shined as bright as it could with the power of her song. She is the one and only Irene Dunn, and tonight we will see her in her element in all three categories as we dive into an Irene Dunn double bill of Showboat from 1936 and My Favorite Wife from 1940. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. There's another Ravenol in the house tonight, Magnolia. Maybe she'll take my encore for me. How about it, Mother? Please play You Are Love. Give him the smile, Noli. Give him the smile. I think she likes this better than any song she knows. Here in my Mr. Arden. Hmm? Sorry. Excuse me. I believe that, uh... Hmm? Nothing? Sweet A. Ah. 
like to have another room? Uh, certainly, sir. Thank you. Very much. What a man. Now, look. My wife, the mother of my children, Ellen Wagstaden. What do you want? Sergeant, I've got a warrant for your arrest. Arrest? You can't arrest me. What's the charge? Bigamy. Bigamy? Huh? <laughs> Who are you? Well, when you see your well, honor, uh, I... he, he was on the island with her. He's not important to this case. I'll decide what's important to the case. They were on an island together for seven years? Yes, Your Honor. Not alone? Yes. Is that in the brief? No, Your Honor, no. Oh, that should be in the brief. That's the most interesting part of the case. I would like to get out of here before I explode. I want to get home myself. I'd like to tell my wife about this case. <laughs> she thinks all my cases are dull. young man in the sheriff's buggy? Yep, I seen him. I seen lots like him along the river. Oh, but Joe, he was such a gentleman. Have you seen Miss Julie? I gotta tell her. I gotta ask her what she thinks. Julie! Julie! Ask Miss Julie what she thinks. But ask the old river what he thinks. He knows all about them boys. He knows all about everything. There's an old man called the Mississippi. That's the old man that I'd like to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? Old man river, that old man river, he must know something, but don't say he just keeps rolling, he keeps on rolling along. You and me, we sweat and strain, body all eaten and racked with pain. Tote that box, lift that veil, you get a little drunk and your land's in jail. I get weary and sick of trying. I'm tired of living and scared of dying. But
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, Irene Dunn's legend in Golden Age Hollywood shines large thanks to her abilities both as a comic actress and as a dramatic actress. When you combine those two with song, you get a consummate showman who is able to dominate anything in her path. But the films we saw her in today also carry with them their own heavy legacies, whether through tumultuous strains of production or through the reckoning of outdated imagery and stereotype that bears need for discussion. And today we shall get into all of that and so much more, but we cannot do it alone. With us is a return guest whose knowledge of Cary Grant and knowledge of all things that are invisible and men is only matched by his love for a man who is clearly visible and can clearly be Iceman's wingman at any time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Ryan Frost. (laughs) Hey, thanks. Yeah. Excited. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Irene Dunn, and um, I, I don't think she gets the, the love that she deserves a lot of times. You, you make up for it more than, more, more than enough. But before we get into Irene Dunn, because we're, we're going to go through, we're going to outlay your, your, your passion for her, but, you know, we, we've talked about Cary Grant before. He's your classic cool. Um, but there's another man who holds your heart. His name's Tom Cruise. And... I wanted to know for if you could give the Ballyhoo a little tease so that they can go over to real nerds and listen to you gush about it. D- did Top Gun do it for you? Did it do everything you wanted it to do, Mr. Ryan Frost? Yes, it brought me back for my need of for speed. <laughs> and <laughs> did you? No, lose, I, did, I, you, honestly, you, are you saying you didn't lose that love and feeling? I did not. <laughs> you know. I was thinking about closing my eyes, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, but, but right now it's my favorite movie of the year. Wonderful. Fantastic. If you want to hear Ryan talk a little bit more about it, you should go over to Real Nerds Podcast, where you guys, um, in, I mean, you guys, I'm on this show too, technically. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, but um, it, it's a rebooted format now. Uh, so the rebooted format is already in effect. Um uh, and uh, now it's just the main review, and then the nerds call in, and uh, they give their new segments uh, for the week. It can be anything. Like, the nerds can be talking about anything. Is that correct? Yeah, I changed it up uh, because we've been doing it for so long, and some of the most common complaints, and it only took me 10 years to change it, or 11, I guess, was it takes us too long to get to the movie we're reviewing. So <laughs> I changed it to that's what we do first. And... Yeah really focusing on the movie of the week. Mm-hmm. But as somebody, as somebody who's been on the show for years, it, it was, it was tough to say goodbye to the old format, but I, I've, I, I've appreciated the benefits of the new one. And yeah, you know what I miss is talking about stuff I've been watching because I see things that I really want to share, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I, if I, if I have to be the one who commits to the change that I said I would do, <laughs> and um, I miss DVDs and Blu-rays because we always kind of come across something that we might blind buy, you know, like, and, yeah, but like that, but that's like when I've been able to call in because uh, I mean, listeners will know by the time I'll, by the time this comes out, I'll already be moved in, but I'm moving in with my girlfriend. And so that's, that's taken its own precedent. But um, the, when I've been able to call in or contribute, the thing that I've missed the most is the DVDs and Blu-rays segment because it's you, you're looking through and like I don't keep up to date with the release schedule unless it's Criterion or Shout and Scream. Um, so like it, it's good to know that like Kino and other companies are putting stuff out and I just like I don't realize it as much as the other companies. Um, so that segment always helped. 
Um, and what we've been watching has been fun too. I, I miss it. I, I like hearing you talk about the golden age stuff that you find. So here's hoping though, you can, you can always call in with the segment though, which is great. Yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe one day I'll just randomly bring it back up. Yeah. Um, there you go. You know, cause it's, it's really, I did it to make it more fluid. I mean, the movie of the week will always be the first thing we do now, but Maybe one week I'll just change it to what we've been watching instead of movie news or something. I don't know. I do what I want. It's my show. Yep. And you can stay tuned for it each and every week on the Real Nerds podcast uh, where you can hear Ryan and his lovely, lovely friends, except for that one named Zach. Fuck him. uh, Talk about. (laughs) He's a piece of shit. He's no he's no Cary Grant. Let's put it that way. Um, well, who is? No, no, nobody. <laughs> Everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Everybody. Even I want to be Cary Grant. Hey, you said the line. <laughs> he said the line. He said the line. <laughs> I know. I have the perfect opportunity when you introduce me to say hello, friends and enemies. Oh God, <laughs> I miss it every time. <laughs> it's, it's that's a that's a if if we ever get to another Cary Grant show, I'll I'll, I'll introduce the show that way. <laughs> <laughs> like instead of instead of the normal introduction, I'll just be like, "Hello, friends and enemies." Um, That's such a deep cut. It's you know from a trailer, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it but it but it it's 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 lovely that we have you here though because you do catch on those tidbits. Um, it's like when I look at the North by Northwest trailer and I see and Cary Grant is it, and I'm like, I'm gonna turn this into a Stephen King joke. Um, <laughs> It's it's just a perfect way to stop on his face and have is it and in quotation marks. I'm like, how can I not do that? Like, and just put him in clown makeup. Um, but, He's America's uh, favorite screen actor. <laughs> yes. Would 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 you argue though then that Irene Dunn is America's favorite screen actress? She has heavy competition uh, about her. So that's what's really hard. I mean. I think Irene Dunn is super underappreciated. And I also think, I mean, she's my favorite golden age actress. I adore her. And, you know, um, I, Carol Lombard's a close second, but I just, I think Irene Dunn is so magnetic. Uh, every time I watch her, I just fall in love with her again, mm-hmm. whether it's love affair, showboat, Penny Serenade, where she breaks my heart. Right. You know, I, I love everything about Irene Dunn. And I wish she was as well revered as someone as uh, Bergman or I don't even know. I'm drawing a blank on maybe Loretta Young or something. You know, I, I just wish uh, Betty, that she was. B- Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, you know, these, yeah. these, these are your, these are your forebearers of, of, uh, pop culture heavy um i I mean like it's it's sort of like judy garland you know i i just every time i just i see irene dunn i'm just reminded of how much i adore the woman and she's so charming and what i love about her is she's willing to make fun of herself and and man she can sing she can act Mm -hmm. uh she is She's definitely the total package if yeah. you're looking for an actress. What's funny about it is that for an actor so storied and so respected all throughout her career, her career only lasted in Hollywood for about 20 years. Yeah, I think she kind of just went away. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe went away is not the best. She decided to stop making films. I think she focused on a family because her husband 
was a doctor, just, mm-hmm. you know, some, some normal guy. <laughs> just, and, just a dude. <laughs> yeah. Just some really dude. just a guy. <laughs> and, um, yes, I married some dude. <laughs> and, uh, so she kind of just, you know, maybe she focused on family life and that's fine too. You know, yeah. well, she had, think, she, she also had a lot of, uh, this is kind of a spoiler for ahead of the episode, what would normally happen, but like, you got to talk about like, this isn't just an actress. She's somebody who like, she dedicated her life afterward to philanthropy. She was, um, she, uh, get, got that UN delegacy. Like she didn't just relegate herself to the acting profession or the singing profession. No, no, she, that's, she had more things to do and that's, and that's fine. I, I, uh, I love her appearance. Uh, what's the name of that show? Uh, oh, oh, um, um, hold on. Is it um, uh, Ernie Kovacs? Ernie Kovacs? No, no, no. no. Where um, you have to guess who they are. Uh, oh, oh, oh. What's her, what's what's my line? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought and you. Were, I thought the, you were leading into the other TV show. <laughs> oh no no no. Um, <laughs> no, it's what's my line? And when they'd ask her a question, she just went. Meh? And it was funny. Um, <laughs> she's yeah. yeah, she's just yeah. I think she just decided to do other things, and I mean, her she was only married once, which is really crazy in golden age Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And you know, her husband died really young too. I think in nineteen sixty five, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and she never remarried or anything. So yeah. Um, but she like she and in addition like you know like the political activism aside she was uh, a member of the California Arts Commission uh, between sixty seven and seventy um, she worked with the American Cancer Society um, she did a benefit show in nineteen fifty five for mentally disabled children um, I won't I don't want to read the name out loud of the title for it because it does sound awful um, but um, but the host of that event was. Um, a certain fiddle playing comedian who Ryan's never heard of <laughs> and could give two shits about. Uh, but his name is, um, I, I want to make sure I get this right. Jack Benet, Be- Benny, Benny, Benny. Not yeah, yeah. Benet. He's uh, <laughs> a Paris born actor. <laughs> yes. Who... A, per- a Parisian born comedian of excellent timing. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, she's, she's great on that episode too. I, yeah, I did a deep dive. I thought it was a few years ago. Um, I did a deep dive and just Irene Dunn. And I mean, she's with Vincent Price and it's just amazing. Yeah. I, I remember you texted me going like, so I've watched a Jack Benny episode and my, and I was <laughs> driving and I nearly flipped off the road. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then, yeah. to know that it was put, that put the episode, caveat in it. <laughs> yeah. To, to know that it was that episode though, I'm like, oh, he picked a perfect one to start off with. Cause that's like a, that is a classic sketch. Like they'd done that sketch before, with uh, Claudette Colbert and Vincent Price, or Basil Rathbone. It might be, I know they've done it more than once with Vincent Price, um, but that actually extends. There was another um, version of that that they did for the um, for one of the Guild Theater programs during the promotion of uh, To Be or Not To Be, where you had Ernst Lubitsch uh, in the episode itself. So it's, it's one of those things with Jack where... Um, it, it's funny that he carried that sketch up into television. I arguably think it is perfected on television because it is like a very good situational piece and you get to watch 
the the sound effects of the walnuts and and everything like that like that 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 stuff just works really well for for television like the the seeing the reaction on his face when he goes the the there are only two of us drinking it <laughs> and watching Dunn play in that space like the only thing that I uh wish is that Cary Grant was in Vincent Price's place um yeah of course I, it, it's not it's not out of like our fandom for Cary Grant. It's just, we never really saw Cary Grant interact with Jack in his career. And to have Cary Grant and Irene Dunn in the same place as Jack, that would have been like the cherry on top, but. Vin- Which is always so odd. Cause they always would hang out together. Yeah. And maybe they just have... made an agreement. Like we, we can't, there's too much awesome in one room. The world will explode. <laughs> I actually, I can't, I don't want to say this for sure, but I'm, pretty sure that Cary Grant said he would never be on TV was a thing. That, so that makes total sense. Um, yeah. until the seventies when he showed up on a lot of tribute dinners and award shows. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean like act on TV. Oh, gotcha. Like, like actual acting. Yeah. That nah, makes yeah. sense. You know, he wants to keep it centered on the thing that will make him a lot of money and makes a lot of sense. Um, but so like with, with done though, like I'll I'll get mine right off the bat. I've never followed Dunn as closely as you have. Um, I, I've known her from her work with Cary Grant, the work she did with Jack um, on that episode, and and Showboat. That's about it. Um, I, I I've seen other things with her recently, thanks to um, Secret History of Hollywood Film Club, um, but not. Uh, but I haven't been as immersed as you have, what got this started? Was it the awful truth? Oh yeah. Um, for the uninitiated, (laughs) I, I I wrote a huge article about my favorite Cary Grant films and I ranked them all. And I don't know. I I mean, it it seems like yesterday, but I started this almost four years ago. Um, the article, I started watching the films a long time ago and I really started, the marathon or whatever you want to call it, because I blind bought the awful truth because I always loved Cary Grant. Um, but I guess I didn't love him, love him like I love him now. Mm-hmm. And so I just randomly bought the awful truth because I love the criterion box art and just reading about it, how it's one of the best screwball comedies ever. Uh, so I bought it on a whim. Mm-hmm. And that was my first exposure to how great Irene Dunn is. And to me, her, you know, tricking Skippy or <laughs> Mr. Smith and uh, awful truth. Yeah. Um, you know, to live with her and they share custody of the dog and her willing to be funny mm-hmm. is a really awesome trait in, in a time where a lot of actresses wouldn't do something like that. I think her and Catherine Hepburn kind of, might be the only ones that were willing to make asses of themselves or be the brunt end of the joke while giving as much as they were taking. And that's probably why they're popular. Uh, I I agree. Although I, although I think Dunn had to learn how to do that. Whereas I think kind of eased into it more gradually. Um, I mean, at this point, let's, let's jump into the life of Irene Dunn, like, and what a life now, We've, we we had some help. Oh, there's some help with this from um, uh, that I didn't expect to find from um, Annette uh, 
Bachanek. I hope I got her name right. Um, she writes a blog called Hometown to Hollywood, um, where it's a golden age of Hollywood blog, and she dug deep into Irene Dunn. And I've been working with her on a uh, Jack Benny recreation group, the last Jack Benny last minute players. Um, so I was wonderfully delighted to see that her work could assist us with today's show. But also, Irene Dunn wrote an article for Picture Goer on February 17th, 1945. It was, that's when it was published, called Hats, Hunches, and Happiness. And this is seemingly the closest we get to an autobiography, unless I'm unaware of something she wrote later in life, Ryan. She didn't. In fact, I haven't bought the book. But I can only find one proper biography on her, mm-hmm. and it's like fifty-eight dollars. Fifty-eight. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and I always want to buy it, and I, I, I probably should. I should just do it. I mean, you've told um, me it's a university press one, so I, I, my reasoning for buying it would be supporting that cause. But yes, exactly. It is definitely a college thing. Yeah. But she's born Irene Marie or Maria. There seems to be some discrepancies here um, on uh, December 20th, 1898. Now, um, some of you might be going like, but she was born in 1901. Well, um, as she gained traction in Hollywood, publicists encouraged reporters to go with the notion that she was born in 1901 or 1904. Uh, and this discrepancy carried with her into her death because her gravestone has her listed as born in 1901. But in fact, church records show that there was a birth year of 1898. So there you go. She was born in 1898, folks. Um, and she was almost born on a riverboat. Uh, her parents were heading for Madison, Indiana, but were forced to disembark in Louisville upon Irene's pending birth. So she was almost born on the thing she would become famous for. <laughs> that's that's insane. But that's that's the life of of traveling amid uh, amid the uh, the the Middle West and stuff like that, and like near near that southern area. Like, yeah, you're gonna come around a couple different showboats. Like it's it's very much a seemingly uh, showbiz upbringing, like one shot away from being born in a trunk, <laughs> like you know. Um, now her father died in 1913. Her father was an in a steamboat engineer and inspector for the U.S. government, and her mother was a concert pianist and music teacher. She comes from Irish and German heritage. Um, her father dies in 1913 when she's 14 from a kidney infection. Her father and her memory of him is described best in part of that hats, hunches, and happiness. And, I mean, Ryan, you read this ahead of time, so you know where I'm going with this. Um, but yep. Happiness is never an accident, he told me. It is the prize we get when we choose wisely from life's great stores. Don't reach out wildly for this and that and the other thing. You'll end up empty-handed if you do. Make up your mind what you want. Go after it. Be prepared for, to pay for it well. Um, th- I hope that you'll go after the rooted things, the self-respect that comes when we accept our share of responsibility, satisfying work, marriage, a home, a family, for these are the things that grow better with time, not less. These things are the bulwarks of happiness, which, first of all, the, nobody says the word bulwark anymore. Uh, the, 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 Ryan, we need to bring back bulwark, maybe. I don't know. Done. I, I mean, I don't know. Hey, is that a done deal? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Throw yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but so now um, there is a story also in here. 
Because like the, the the theme of the article, which we can post on the Twitter uh, page, because it's transcribed from the, thanks to the Wayback Machine on the internet, you can look back on this. But um, the 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 theme of this article is is amongst other things hats and what led how they led to many many of her successes. But she was singing in the she went on to sing in the Indianapolis Baptist Church Choir. And she said, $10 to a teenage girl is a fortune, but none too much to purchase her heart's desire, a new hat. It was a large of silky straw, pale blue with long streamers and extravagantly painted flowers under the brim. It cost exactly $10. The new crisp bill was in my purse, the first I had ever earned, given me for singing in the Indianapolis Baptist Church Choir, singing hymns taught to me by the nuns. I truly believe that from that day on, I subconsciously decided on a career. The hat did it. So she's she's burgeoning with a desire for show business at an early age. Um, her father taught her to, or her mother taught her to play at the piano at a young age, and she would say that music was as natural as breathing in our house. Um, she took place in school productions of a summer night's dream, where it sparked her interest in acting. But she had a she had another dream, Ryan. She wanted a uh, she wanted a dream. Uh, she had to dream big. And what what else is there but the opera? That's like the 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 peak. That's the mountaintop of high culture. Um, so she worked hard at her musical career. She ended up um, aspiring towards a career as a music teacher after she earned a diploma from Indianapolis Conservatory of Music, and then graduated in 1926 from the Chicago Musical School through a scholarship. And um, now it was it's 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 said in here and it's seemingly backed up by Jimmy Stewart in the Kennedy Center Honors video, which if there's anybody I'm going to trust with a fact. It's Jimmy Stewart. Like he he doesn't really bullshit me in interviews. Of course. <laughs> no, no. Why would I do that? Like, what, what, you think I'm just some kind of do you think I'm just printing fucking legend? <laughs> Jeez, just I'm I I'm many things. I am I'm a senator. I'm uh, I'm. I'm George Bailey, but one thing I'm not is a fucking liar. Um, now, uh, it's said that she was training as a soprano with the hopes of singing at the Met Opera, but, Ryan, she failed two auditions. The snooty opera <laughs> told, told her fuckers. <laughs> you think she said that as she walked out the door on the second one? <laughs> <laughs> they went no talent if it bit her up, bit him on the ass. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? The opera really distinguished itself as a true high class watermark of culture the moment the Marx Brothers were allowed to invade it. I'm just gonna throw true. that out there. You well, know. at least for one night. Yeah. Well, yeah. On I mean, it was on night at the opera. Yeah. <laughs> it was before they had a day at the races, and then then they went west. Then they were at the circus, and then. Things start crumbling. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, anyway, uh, she then moves into Broadway. Um, she um, uh, she starts off with a debut in 1926 in The Clinging Vine, uh, starting off supporting before assuming the leading role uh, when the original star that uh, uh, the star that originated that role left two years afterward. Um, she then had roles that followed in The City Chap, Yours Truly, and She's My Baby. So she kept working at it, and she got into musical theater instead, which, let's face it, the true the, tr the true cream of the crop when it comes to high culture, you know. 
Um, this yeah. this is the format that gave us the producers on stage, so I will always support that. Um, now, uh, hats continue a, a a bit of a story here. Um, uh, this is um, this is how she gets into a role that would end up really serving as a good breakout period for her. Um, she says in the article, a few years later in New York, a blue hat did it again. Any young girl aspiring to a theatrical career held Florence Ziegfeld in awe. When I, my, I, when I found myself riding in a lift with the great showman, I was too much frightened to even look at him much less to get off on the same floor. Imagine my surprise when a few minutes later, I discovered a young woman calling after me. Stop, stop, she called. Mr. Siegfield wants you. You, the girl in the blue hat. Showboat was the result, Ryan. So, uh, Showboat was a a major success prior to Dunn joining in, um, but she ended up joining the the road company tour of Showboat. Um, and, uh, so her, her career soars from that point because she gets scouted by RKO talent scouts during one of the performance. And she signs a contract with them where her first film ends up being the film Leathernecking. Um, and, um, from there she is sort of placed in melodramatic roles as opposed to musical ones. She has musical roles at first, and then they kind of push her into these melodramas. Um, uh, Stewart, James Stewart at the Kennedy Center Honors um, referred to her as Queen of the Weepies, I think I want to say is the, uh, is the term he used. But it was like she was, a, she, was a, she was a dominant force in these weepy films where, you know, the emotions run high and low. You're expected to cry at the end and then... Uh, so, something either miraculous or tr- tragic happens, um, and so she would be um, uh, she would be placed in these kind of pre-code melodramas that surprisingly could have very shocking material. There's a film that she did <laughs> that uh, I I don't know how to fully describe without just having you watch the movie, but it's called The Silver Cord from 1933, and it's 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 um. It's sort of psycho before psycho because it's this you have you have this uh, this mother character played by Laura Hope Cruz, who is just a over domineering and bordering on incestuous mother character that's trying to affect her children's marriages. It is crazy shit. So she was put in films like this or Backstreet or No Other Woman. So like she was getting these kind of like roles that don't necessarily distinguish her in any kind of particular way. Um, now the move though, that really kicks her off is the movie Cimarron. Um, she, um, she landed the coveted role of Sabra, um, and that got her her first Oscar nomination. Um, and so from there, she's able to proclaim a name for herself. Um, now she did something that Cary Grant also did which was not not the awful truth hear me out uh she went into becoming a little bit more of an uh, she she went off of uh being uh a a contract player and she went into an independent mode the way Cary Grant did which if you if i recall correctly Ryan because of especially the way Cary Grant did it that was pretty risky for her to do at that time oh yeah it's 
because they can blackball you all they want. And it doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter if you're the most talented player on the planet. Like you're gonna fall into a problem there. But I still think that's why he never won an Oscar is because mm-hmm. of what he did with that. Yeah, it's highly it's highly likely. Um, and she moved over to, but before she went independent, she went over to Warner Brothers for remakes of Roberta and Sweet Adeline. So they got her back into a, a musical territory. Now, in 1936, she's cast in the new musical version of Showboat, um, which I think we can kind of jump into Showboat here. Um, Showboat is a a musical from a, a musical from 1927 by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II. Um, Showboat had a very rocky production for a multitude of reasons, um, but. One of the reasons that the film is immensely watchable, um, despite things we will talk about, is that it is directed by the one and only James Whale, um, director of Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House. Um, the, the, The horror genre for James Whale was honestly a fraction of what his actual talent was. And this is one of those prime examples. Now, the other piece of tumultuous element to this is that this film is being done by Universal. They had prior th- prior to this, they had done a part talkie version of Showboat. And so, Ryan, are you aware of what a part talkie is? Uh, yeah, that's where the musical numbers would have talking, and the rest of it would not be. Yeah. So, the, and the reasons for this. Or because, and because, and I'm asking not out of like uh, condescension. I don't know how many people would be aware of this, but during the transition from silent to sound, um, because of a certain movie about a certain singer of jazz, um, <laughs> the uh, the the studios were trying to uh, catch up with the technology, and so by the time that they that sound had really arrived, they were already amid making a silent version of showboat um with laura laplante um and uh joseph schildkraut (laughs) um uh amongst others and they ended up making a talkie version that has a sound prologue and um and various scenes uh contain sound music but it wasn't the musical that people had seen on stage it was more kind of treated as a romantic drama so they really want to mount a big remake of Showboat for a multitude of reasons, one of which being the studio is uh, in the need of loans because their business acumen and decisions haven't been the best. Um, needless to say, Carl Lemley and Carl Lemley Jr. to a, to a, to a large extent um, really didn't have a lot going for their studio um, up into the moment that it, fell out of their hands. Uh, they did not have a chain of theaters. Um, they bet on horses that didn't always play out in their favor uh, to much financial dismay. So this is a film that's supposedly supposed to save them. Um, and Whale being brought on is seemingly a reward for also doing Bride of Frankenstein, um, which at the time that it got worked out, it was still called The Return of Frankenstein. 
Um, so Whale wants to bring back as many back people from the production as possible. One of the original writers on this piece was going to be Zoe at uh, Zoe Aikens, um, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Like she was a prestigious author. Her draft is rejected and thrown out, and Oscar Hammerstein II is is brought in to write the screenplay for Showboat. Um, additionally, Whale secures Winninger, Charlie Winninger, Helen Morgan, Paul Robeson, Francis X. Mahoney, and Sammy White to come back and play roles that they had played on stage before. Um, Francis X. Mahoney, by the way, would also be in the 1946 re- uh, tour of Showboat just before his passing, so he kind of carried Rubberface Smith with him until his death. Um, he also secures the original orchestration uh, uh, by Robert Russell Bennett and the conductor, Victor Bar- Baravel, uh, to g- go on to this. So he's really trying to recapture the stage version of this. Um, Dunn is brought in, um, reported by Variety on January 7th, 1935, to a two-picture deal with Universal. The second film on that contract is a film called The Magnificent Obsession. Um, now... Here comes the part where it gets interesting. People really loved Showboat, Ryan. This thing was a huge, huge musical success. Another studio wanted to buy the property back from Universal. There was an offer from another studio of $250,000 for the store. So another studio was already trying to grab it. And the reason I bring that up is because Studios wanting this property will come back into play in a second. Um, but you heard a name earlier uh, by the name of Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson is a legend that, Ryan, you really kind of helped me reappreciate Robeson because I only knew him as Old Man River from Showbo. Man was so much more. Talk a little bit about him. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those stories that kind of grows organically out of showboat where he took the lyrics and he changed the lyrics somewhat and he made it as a sort of a rallying cry for civil rights and he would go around the world not just america and he would perform old man river um as kind of a rallying cry for civil rights for african-americans who were you know, treated poorly. Mm-hmm. And he kind of create made that his crusade after showboat from, and it, that moment in that film, it, it honestly brings a tear to my eye. It is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so well shot. He, his performance is so awesome. James whale that, loves Paul Robeson. You can tell by the way he shoots him. You can, you can tell like that push in on Joe, the moment he enters the frame, like when is in his first scene, when he, when he shows up for the first time and Queenie's yelling at yeah. him. Oh my God. It's an epic shot. Nobody, virtually nobody apart from Rubberface Smith, which I noticed rewatching last night, only he and Rubberface Smith get a push in that epic and Robeson gets it twice. <laughs> and yes. the, other, the other one being right before they sing love in that man of mine. Um, yeah, and, and that's the, that's the hero shot. That's the Michael 
<laughs> that's the Michael Bay shot. Michael Bay shot him. <laughs> that he that he stole, you know, from James Well from nineteen. 19- I, I said, did this young man who just makes uh, incessant movies about robot cars steal my work? Oh, no, no, no. That won't do. That won't do. I, I'm going to have to kill him now. <laughs> um, Robeson, though, you know, his his legend looms large. Um, this is the third African-American student ever enrolled at Rutgers University, and he was the only one there at the time. Um, he He went to Columbia Law School. Um, he, he found himself in a theatrical research, in a theatrical surgeons called the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and he was in a lot of Eugene O'Neill's work. Um, the Emperor Jones being a very big piece in that. Um, I mean, and also, I mean, you should point out that he was also a valedictorian and he mm-hmm. played in the NFL while he was getting his degree from Columbia Law School. So, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like. Um, hey, if you want to know a dude who is way more talented than you, um, just look up Paul Robeson because, you know, he, uh, he was an all American in football. He was, he, I think he, if I remember, I think he went to, uh, Rutgers on a scholarship. Mm-hmm. So he's academically, he's better than you mm-hmm. athletic. He's better than you. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he can sing better than you. Yep. And yeah. yeah, you know he was he was a lawyer for yep. a time. So he, if you he, if you're like, man, I'm I'm pretty good at what I do. Yeah, yep, he, not he, good as Paul Robeson. <laughs> yeah, he he literally like you know, and 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 it sucks because unfortunately, a lot of what Robeson pushed against and one one in so many cases was the racism that in, in the country that held him back. Um, in London, he was much more celebrated and respected whereas in america obviously not not even close to the case um now what's interesting though is that he is compelled enough to come back to this show he had received criticism um for uh the uh the the show itself was criticized in london um especially by black critics for the usage of the n-word now, the lyrics of Old Man River, Robeson was instrumental in having certain phrases changed in this film version that we saw. Um, now, going forward, when he would perform it, as you said, he would start changing the lyrics and slowly but surely removing the trappings of racism from the song and turning it into a message stri- strictly towards uh, civil rights. So it's interesting that this landmark song that he really perfects becomes a rallying call for civil rights when the song itself is mired in in racism of the era as well as minstrelsy, but it also at the same time, oddly enough, is commenting on the the exploitation of slave labor during during a pre-Civil War world in a way that is fascinating to examine it's the way he see, it's the way he sings it and the way he performs it mm-hmm. yeah it's, it, it it changes everything about that song he changed the meaning of it he changed the trajectory of the song he changed the trajectory of his own career yeah and i i mean changed how some people felt about how we look at 
slavery, not because, you know, back then, sometimes they would glorify it. And yeah, the way he sings and performs that song breaks your heart. Um, Not only that, the way whale shoots it, it's the way whale shoots it. Because yeah. it's one thing to have that performance and that emotion. The cherry on top for that is when he cuts away to the struggle of an African-American in a Reconstruction world and in a slavery world. He's like those small inserts of Joe working, landing in jail after being drunk. Like mm-hmm. They are images that are soul-crushing. And Whale, it seems like this movie... For the first hour or so, um, Whale is actively doing what he can, it seems like, to budge against convention that would solidify itself in something like Gone with the Wind or Song of the South. Um, he's actively mm-hmm. pushing against it. Um, and But with within all of that, as this production goes along, before he even starts... He gets on stage and performs a bunch of concerts, Milwaukee, Portland, and Seattle before hitting Hollywood. So he's like, well, if I'm coming, I'm going to make a lot of money because it's not worth being back in this country. (laughs) Um, um, And so uh, production keeps getting moved, delayed, delayed. And finally, we get a start around December where we have uh, the report of uh alan jones being the missing link alan jones is in a night at the opera which we were talking about earlier um uh or as i call alan jones not zeppo um (laughs) and um he um he apparently didn't like the way whale directed the film because he said that whale didn't understand the old south and its customs and manner and i want to tell alan jones right now on this show shut the (laughs) fuck up (laughs) We're good without having the old South and customs. Yeah. I'm good without it. Yeah. And, and sure you're fine in night at the opera and day at the races, but you're not fucking Zeppo. <laughs> yeah. Say what you will about Zeppo. Uh, he may be, he may just be a walking stick, but he interacts with his brothers better than Alan Jones did. Um, now, now here's the, here's some key things to recognize within this before we jump back to Dunn, because showboat, we kind of knew, it was going to be a heavy discussion to begin with. Um, But as this film deals with the old South in old time Hollywood context, that comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, The imagery in showboat is complicated to a fault. Um, Unlike gone with the wind though, I feel like this film carries ideas that it imperfectly delivers. Um, one of them being the character of Julie, uh, the character of Julie, who is um, half black and half white, and how she and her husband, Steve, are ousted from the showboat company in a scene that is very <laughs> dramatic and very over the top in a certain respect. But it plays well. It's not it doesn't feel melodramatic like other melodramas feel at that time. Like it does genuinely feel sincere. Um and the additional factors of this is you also have Hattie McDaniel in it, who would become famous, obviously, as Mammy and Gone with the Wind. Um, I would I want to point out, Ryan, that there is such an awe watching her in her first scene where she talks back to Pete um, because yeah. of the brooch. That that scene 
it's it's her delivery where she just goes like this bro- this brooch it was given to me like it's just like she's just playing and laying into him and like telling mm-hmm. him like fuck you like Julie doesn't <laughs> yeah. like you you piece of shit <laughs> um but um the uh and the the other key thing is that as we have Hattie McDaniel and Paul Robeson there was an insistence to cast African American actors in these roles um, no matter how imperfectly it would be uh, unveiled. As it turns out, as I was looking through Variety, I saw that this was a trend that seemed to be burgeoning in Golden Age Hollywood at this very moment in 1935. There's an article here from uh, November 6, 1935, and I'm, I'm going to say the name of the headline, but I'm, I'm quoting the headline. Negro film musical cycle, major studios sched several schedule several. Um, uh, Warner's leads off with Green Pastures. Columbia scouts Porgy and Bess has colored players in Georgiana. So there is a surge of casting African American actors rather than resorting to the unfortunate element of blackface um, or omitting characters of that sort altogether. Imperfect, obviously. But it's it's sort of a weird step towards towards breaking down those barriers. Um, the 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 Hollywood the the lead off on this one of them is Columbia's Georgiana will have several colored people in the cast, as will Universal Showboat. Paramount's So the Red Ro- So Red the Rose just completed has three colored players in featured spots. The new Al Jolson picture at Warner Brothers has the Cab Calloway band featured. So there is a there is a there is a a, a a a lot of walls being broken in a lot of respects here slowly but surely bit by bit uh, that these performers are getting a chance to shine on the silver screen the the consequence unfortunately is is that they're relegated mostly to stereotypes or featured performers um, well, also too i mean the, the language of that article is it's so bad yeah it is that's the that's the problem with that's the problem with discussing this is you want to acknowledge that some progress is being made but this is one of the things in here that it says and i'm sure you read that sub headline old fear passes yeah wow wow it is it's unfortunate to read stuff like this it's interesting to note though about that kind of progress being made it comes at the consequence of this and frankly the fact that Showboat itself as a show is so mired in these tropes of the South and treating African-Americans as perfectly content with no conflict whatsoever, as if the struggles of Reconstruction and its failure didn't occur. <laughs> like it's, it's very distressing. And then the, the thing that Showboat does to separate itself to my mind and I could maybe 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 I'm wrong Ryan and you can provide uh, provide an ant- uh, provide your perspective on it for me showboat for however imperfect it is there's an attempt to get at larger questions do they always succeed no but it's there you you can clearly point to this is here and Robeson's a big example of it the scene of uh, Queenie and Joe singing that song together near the middle half of the film. It's very imperfect, but it shows them being characters as a married couple 
which seems like something that wouldn't be allowed. Um, Then, and, and, but like, and also another part of why I guess this film might be more easier to swallow than Gone with the Wind for me is, is that it doesn't dominate the movie. Um, and it's not four hours long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but um, the uh, but the but I I think that before we jump into Dunn's part in all of this, we can acknowledge that this film, while it is imperfect, there is a reason to watch it from the perspectives that we've been talking about. Um, yeah. It's 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 important to recognize it as one of those stepping stones that is very imperfect, but does contain uh, valuable pieces in it. And literally, one of the f- the first piece of dialogue out of the film is an African American by the name of um, I've got his name right here, Eddie Rochester Anderson. Uh, it seems like somebody I've talked about before, Ryan. I- could be wrong um yeah no uh yes eddie rochester anderson prior to uh his long standing role on the jack benny program as rochester van jones is the first person to say a line of dialogue in showboat and his line is there's the showboat <laughs> he says the title oh, of the he movie. said it yes he's he fulfills the peter griffin line um I find it interesting. It's there's no way you can connect this, but it's interesting that Eddie's in this movie, and then within moments you see Hattie McDaniel doing the talking back to Pete. That would become uh, Eddie's bread and butter on the Jack Benny program of talking back to a white person, like that. That's just astonishing to think about, like how you can sort of see the tide turning in certain directions. It's not perfect, but it's turning there. Um, Now, how does Dunn fit into this kind of heavy an atmosphere? Well, Dunn, I'm going to go off of a theory, Ryan, when it comes to Irene in this film. One of the reasons this is the most important film to talk about with Irene Dunn is we are seeing the only filmic evidence we will have of what would have made her popular enough for an RKO talent scout to take a chance on her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and additionally, we have the factor of Irene Dunn kind of evolving from this naive young girl into this experienced and wizened woman by the end of the film. And it's a remarkable thing to watch over the course of the film. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Magnolia character is written with a lot of kindness and compassion. Um, and it gives Dunn a chance to fly. I don't know. I'm wondering how you feel about her performance in this film, because I have some thoughts about the way it evolves, but I want to start with you on this. Uh, I think she's pretty good in it. I I think there is a little bit of the staginess left to it, but I don't know if that's her issue or Wells sticking as close as he can to the production uh, from the stage. Um, but I mean, I think she's she's easy to fall in love with for sure. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, she sings like a freaking angel. So um, I'm a little more forgiving of it because I think it's it fits the the style that Wells going for. She, she had something interesting to say about, uh, whale as a director. She told the periodical table talk 
1936 that she was unsure of James Whale's direction and had concerns, but her concerns floated away because she proclaimed her favorite scene to be make-believe with Alan Jones because the blocking reminded her of Romeo and Juliet. And Mm. I, 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 I had this, uh, uh, this this image in my head of the reverse balcony scene with her and Alan Jones, like instead of having mm-hmm. Romeo at the bottom and it's now Magnolia at the bottom and uh, Gaylord on top. Uh, you yeah, have, that's actually a really fun scene. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, it's interesting to watch Whale, because I agree there are very stagey moments in this film and she's unfortunately at the center of most of them. But I, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I don't know how often I see this in modern musicals. Whale keeps Magnolia and Gaylord Ravenel at a distance through most of their musical numbers, because even if they're in the same frame together, he will cut away to profile shots of them singing to each other or talking to each other. So he, he sort of visually keeps a distance between those two until the very end when Gaylord has come back into her life and they sing on the balcony during Kim's performance. And so like, I think that whale is doing what he can to show you that this is a movie and not a stage show. This is a movie, but the problem with some of Magnolia scenes is that they do seem a little stagey because she's in wider shots for the good chunk of the first part of the movie. Um, And her character of naive I will say that from a Dunn perspective, as a Dunn appreciator, my only frustration with her performance in Showboat is when she's playing naive. She, you, mm-hmm. It's easy to fall in love with her, but it's almost like, I don't want you to be this naive. I want you to be Irene Dunn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the beauty of it, to my mind, is that she evolves into somebody wizened. My favorite moment with her is when she's rehearsing with, with her daughter, Kim when she like stops playing the piano and you get this spark of what you would end up seeing in um, uh, uh, her, her later work, um, even in the comedies, like when she gets very sincere with Cary Grant and the awful truth, like you kind of see that the, 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 the wisdom in her eyes, I, I call it yeah. like you, you, you sense that she is somebody that has been through a lot and she's, unloading experience upon her daughter in in sort of a subtle way because she's she's cloaking it in rehearsal but you can tell the pain behind her eyes um and then she gets a more outward version of that within the uh within the finale where she's singing before gaylord comes out to the balcony um and you know she she does have a scene that has an issue that lays into what we were talking about prior with Showboat, which is she is in blackface in this movie for um, a, a musical number called Gallivantin' Around, um, mm-hmm. and it's there. There is another uh, moment in the film where she dances uh, that plays into that idea of her character is influenced so much by the african-american songs that she hears about her life every day um and that dance during love and that man of mine uh is an example of that the unfortunate part of her blackface performance apart from the fact that it's blackface is that she's appropriating so much that it's very rough to watch um objectively it's she's very talented but it's just a hard scene to watch so it's 
Yeah. It's one of those things where I'm like, where we're talking about Irene Dunn, we're not doing this to call out a, a, an actor of the past. We are just pointing out that it's like, it's like watching Eleanor Powell in Honolulu. I like watching Eleanor Powell dance, but there's a scene in Honolulu where she's in blackface and it's just about uh, as unwatchable as it can get. Um, and what's what sucks about that scene too is that it's just before and and a little bit during watching the showboat itself unfurl with Captain Andy show. Um, Captain Andy played by Charlie Winninger, who I think I think he's one of the secret ingredients of this film, apart from Robeson and McDaniel. Um, Winninger's great in this movie. He is Captain Andy is <laughs> he's the dad you wish you could have. <laughs> <laughs> just very supportive of your showbiz dreams so long as it keeps his showboat running. <laughs> um, and because um, I like watching the jankiness of this theatrical production on a showboat, um, like you literally have Rubberface Smith first auditioning how to moo like a cow and then given the chance to moo like a cow. <laughs> Um, and actually that's the other push in whale does. He does a push in of, uh, of rubber Bay Smith doing the moo. <laughs> and I kept thinking like, is whale just really trying to be as campy where he can here? Because the only other, the only other place he has to do this is with, um, uh, Parthi, um, uh, Magnolia's mom, who is an Una O'Connor character that Una O'Connor wasn't allowed to play. <laughs> Um, she is very uh, uptight. She is like she's got this villainous streak about her as the mother because, like, in, in this melodrama of the two love two lovers getting together, she's the force that stands in their way. Um, and I I appreciate those small moments where Whale can get his camp fix in. Um, and during the segment with Dunn. Uh, doing gallivanting around, there is this lovely shot from behind the stage of Charlie Winninger getting up on a ladder and uh, grabbing a, a a lid and a light to simulate the moon coming over or the sun coming over the hills of this backdrop. And there was like it's it was it's heartbreaking to watch to me to my mind because it's like. I wish this scene was in any of uh, this moment was in any other scene in this movie because <laughs> that's a great shot and it's a great little testament to showbiz love, but it's stuck in this sad thing. Um, now when done though, I think that her showiest performance and like probably the one that would have gotten her an Oscar nomination, if there were any for this uh, would have been when she's in the boarding house, when she's at her low ebb. Um, oh yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's hard. She's so great in that moment. Yeah, she she un she unloads like she almost like it's almost like she because they they talk about Julie and her talk about early on about like how no matter how much Gaylord would hurt her, she would still love him. Um, which let's get this off the back. Gaylord Ravenel is an asshole, <laughs> the highest order. Um, uh, he's very charming. It's clear that you could see why she would fall in love with him, but he's such a scoundrel with gambling and, you know, just bargain, just trying to increase himself on the societal ladder so much that he takes a big old tumble down, uh, that it, you finally see Magnolia breaking down and crying over this. And I just feel like, I feel like Dunn for me is is top tier in comedy, which we'll talk about later. 
but she handles drama so well because the, that's a scene that feels like it should be cheesy as sin and she plays it so real like she is not she has actual pain she's bringing into it and it doesn't seem like she had the worst upbringing in the world so that's just talent right there that's just the, oh, yeah. that's the ability to be insightful as an actor and know what to do um so i mean ryan if you had to pick a moment from showboat where irene dunn shines the best what do you think it is oh wow um i i don't know um <laughs> that's a big question um <laughs> there's so many <laughs> yeah uh yeah i maybe when she's at her lowest and has to leave that uh that world behind that comfort that she had and how she's ostracized mm -hmm. um, by that and how she's treated by her supposed, you know, husband and things like that is it, it'd probably be moments like that where it's a little more um, subdued. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean uh, the Rome quote unquote Romeo and Juliet scene. I absolutely adore. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. So probably those two would be, my highlights of the film. I, I would agree with those. I had one additional note when they go up to the top of the, um, the, to the top of the deck or the top roof of the showboat. Um, and she and, uh, Gaylord are, cause she's so like the context is she goes up there and she says, well, I ran into mother and told her I was getting water and she was thirsty. So now I have to get her water and be back quick. But the moment she's locking eyes with Gaylord, she goes in to kiss him and she just drops that ladle right quick. She's just like, nope, fuck this. I'm going to get kissed. <laughs> it's just this like, I don't know if that's whale directing or if that's her, but she like she starts showing those comedy chops. Um, yeah. The, the other one, I don't think this is intentional. Her first line in the movie is a simple, hello. And <laughs> I... I just liked the way she delivered it because it reminded me of Gracie Allen or I'm just like, she's playing it naive and it just works so beautifully. Um, uh, also, whenever she's directing other people, like, because she's a fan of her father's stage boat, she knows all the lines of all these melodramas that Julie and Steve um, and Schultz and Shipwell would have uh, been acting in, that she's reminding them of, of the dialogue when they're in the showboat melodrama sketch. Um, I like how she's going like, remember, you're my sister. Remember, you're my sister. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can see her comedy chops, and she hadn't been placed in a strictly comedy role yet at this point. So these are the chops that give us the indication of where she can go. Like, in a lot of ways, Showboat is a perfect vehicle for Dunn because it showcases the best of her in so many ways. Like, the property Agreed. the property itself allows her to be a standout in a way that is different from Robeson because I think Robeson's standout doesn't just come from the power that we discussed, but it comes from the fact that he is unique in this story that deals with an otherwise privileged class. But Dunn's performance is is a traditional showy part that we still see today. Like we still see those kind of like breakout roles for people like Rachel Zegler in um uh 
West Side Story, the uh, recent West Side Story that Spielberg put out. Like that is a yeah, showcase for an actress, and and that's a musical right there that still shows that somebody can be uh, that standout and then have a career following that. Um, so, uh, like, and I'm wondering, like, apart from Dunn and Robeson, what what is it about Showboat for you, Ryan, that stands out? Like, because you bought this blind, you blind bought this on Criterion. Um, well, yeah, I bought it because I love Irene Dunn. <laughs> right. So, like, what what makes it stand out for you as something to keep on that shelf? Uh, you know, I honestly, I think it's has a lot to do. Um, once you get past the Irene Dunn of it, because I obviously adore that woman, uh, it's the the story of Robeson and uh, the included documentary that won. An Academy Award, I think, in 1979. Uh, it's narrated by Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. And it gave that film um, a life beyond the film and makes it that much more important for how it, it aged, mm-hmm. you know, by Paul Robeson continuing the legacy of it not in a negative way, but using his powerful voice yeah. literally and figuratively to carry it on. So to me, historically and it just historically, it's so important. And I think it's a film everybody should own. I think everybody should see how it evolved from just a, musical film into something so much more and for me to experience that just because i wanted to see another movie with irene dunn Mm -hmm. and come away with it being so much more historically impactful Mm -hmm. to me is why it should be in everybody's movie collection yeah the the way that this film transcends its setting in very small but very important ways, not the least of which is if it, it when I say small, I mean there's a there's a line that whale has to tow with pushing the cart forward while not drawing attention to himself. And yeah. I feel like the showiest he's allowed to get is because Old Man River was such a popular song and a popular hit that this film only elevated to status legendary um, is, is important to recognize because whale after, after this film whale gets one more film, one more big film before he's kind of ousted from favor at universal. And it really is a showcase for him showing what he's able to do with material that, doesn't really hold up well by today's standards except for what he brings to the proceedings and who he got in front of that camera to do it i think getting done was very important um because she is she she inhabits magnolia so well the other thing is getting robeson in there um and and getting hattie mcdaniel in there getting performers of such top tier talent like the thing about this movie is in a similar way to Gone with the Wind, it's hard to ignore because the cast is stacked. 
with so yeah. many legendary performers. Um, but as distinguished with difference, the other part of this too is that when it's all said and done, this film is a showbiz movie. This is a movie about showbiz, and Whale clearly revels in the theatrical side of this production. Like he he lavishes it. Like the opening scene, the opening credit scene of that mobile of the showboat is so creative. He is mm -hmm. doing whatever he can to just find a creativity, keeping it to the format of cinema. He knows the difference between stage and screen. And by this point in his career, he is immersed in screen. Um, so what? So this film was a massive success, Ryan. However, it came at a heavy cost. So this film was the film that Lemley Jr. and the entire studio was banking on in order to keep the studio in the Lemley hands. Um, as far into 1936 as January 14th, Charles Rogers um, uh, had already been uh, from the Rogers and Cowden group had been loaning universal money at a certain point. The loan had to be paid back by a certain date or Rogers and Cowden owned the studio showboat didn't get finished in time. So as a result, not more than weeks after the completion of, or not more than days after the completion of production, we get a report from March 5th, 1936. It says, you buy goes bye-bye. That says Lemley is very confident that he'll own, that his 6% of stock holdings will be enough to keep him in possession of the studio. So there's, there's hope. There's faith that this will work. And then we get a report of the finish on March 12th, 1936, after 63 days of shooting. And then there is a report on the 18th that says Lemley Jr.'s next production will be My Man Godfrey. So they're mm. very confident that they're going to keep this studio, Ryan. <laughs> Much to our dismay. Now, then comes off of March 18th, that same day, 5.5 million swings universal sale. So they didn't finish the movie in time, which made Cowden and Rogers be in the position to offer to buy the studio which was accepted. Uh, Lemley leaves studio he founded in 1912. R.H. Cochran, now president. Rogers in charge of production. New deal for Granger. Option pickup surprises. April takeover. Variety covers from page 5 up into page 13 of the Universal takeover and what it meant and what was going to happen. It's lengthy and it goes into the fact that this studio that was found a foundational institution in Hollywood, one of the oldest studios that's ever existed, left its family's possession earlier than most other studios formed after it. Um, Warner Brothers stayed in Warner Brothers' hands up into the 60s. Um, you know, Fox, uh, Fox is an interesting situation, but if you want to put it into terms of Daryl Zanuck, Zanuck held on to his studio until about the 60s. Um, you know, MGM was in Louis B. Mary's hands up into the 50s. 
But this is an early takeover, and Rogers and Cowding get a studio that's on shaky, collapsible ground. It wasn't until things like My Man Godfrey came out that were able to kind of, they needed a hit, and Godfrey provided that. But it would take Deanna Durbin, Abbott and Costello, and the Monsters to keep that studio afloat up until MCA buys it in the 60s. So it's it's amazing to think that Showboat is tangentially responsible for the collapse of a studio. I don't know if there's any film that's been made in recent memory that is solely the reason for a studio's collapse. I can't think of yeah. one. I think that the difference being that they were working picture by picture. And in the case of Universal, they didn't have a theater chain. But these studios are now wrapped up in conglomerates. There's not like a one film that is like broken Warner Brothers or Disney. Um, Paramount seems to be the closest to letting films completely collapse them. But um, but they seem to keep themselves afloat. And thankfully, it seems like Top Gun has given them a reason to survive. Um, so, um, I no like, no, not a joke. This isn't to placate your love of Tom Cruise. I think Top Gun is the reason that Paramount's going to have some cash influx because it doesn't seem like as a movie studio that they're necessarily flushed compared to maybe their television division with Star Trek. Um, but the film was a success. And after Showboat, Dunn then goes into independent freelance territory following her expiration with the Warner Brothers contract, this is where we're going to start getting comedy, Irene. And it really starts with a movie called Theodora Goes Wild, which neither of us have seen. But uh, it's it's really the film that kind of catapults her into the comedy of stardom because she gets her second Oscar nomination off of that film. Um, and then she uh, would follow it with a movie that I don't think anybody on this show has ever heard of. Um let me see if I can pull this up, Ryan. The Awful Truth. Have you heard of that film? No, it sounds like garbage. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like it's any good. Uh, it says it stars a man who uh, who was British but then became American and spoke with this kind of continental accent. Uh, it has a dog. Um, yeah, no, it's one of the best comedies of all time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the Awful Truth was a major success under the direction of Leo McCary. Um, it was so successful and Grant, <laughs> I do find this interesting. Dunn wasn't sure about her ability to be in comedies until Theodora Goes Wild was a success. Like she had like hesitations about it, um, but she was able to prove him wrong because she has that natural ability. Grant and Dunn seemingly did not like McCary's direction at all whatsoever on Awful Truth because of the improv. Nope. No. Nope. Nope. Grant offered to buy his way out of the movie mm-hmm. now clearly their minds are changed after the success of the awful truth i'm we don't i don't know if we have like an absolute reason for this but i have to imagine it's because they saw the final product and saw how strong it was and that what he was doing was correct because why else would you immediately sign on to my favorite wife almost instantly without even a script in hand yeah. Like that that's that's the kind of that, that's the shocker to me is like if you were that upset by it, how would you how would you sign on immediately? It has to be because they realize McCary's a fucking genius. Yeah, they signed on for us for for the film without reading a script because of the success of the awful truth. 
Now, we pick up Leo McCary here. He's riding pretty high on success after the awful truth. And then, unfortunately, he falls into a car accident. <laughs> um, and uh, this uh, this was a very severe car accident to the point where McCary was bedridden. So the film My Favorite Wife uh, gets handed over directorially to Garson Kanan. Um, Garson Kanan is somebody that I was not particularly uh, knowledgeable about uh, from a large perspective. He was a screen, he was a screenwriter and director. Um, he did plays. He starts off with a play called little old boy um, as an actor. And then he starts directing plays in 1936 with Hitcher wagon. He then directs Spencer Tracy and Tracy's first play in 15 years. Um, and it, the play was called The Rugged Path, which was written by Robert E. Sherwood, the writer of um, The Petrified Forest. Um, and the, f- the play that would bring Kanan most acclaim and success was Born Yesterday. It ran for 1,642 performances, and he worked uncredited on the screenplay for the 1950 adaptation of it. Um, this adaptation won Judy Holliday her Oscar. Um, now, as far as his film career is concerned, though, um, uh, he wrote many screenplays actually for Tracy and Hepburn, including Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike. Um, so he he found a niche in comedy. And My Favorite Wife is a beautiful movie. <laughs> I fucking love this movie, Ryan. I hadn't watched it until you uh, recommended it. I watched it sight unseen. Um, and it's, it's a marvelous film. I didn't realize until preparing for this film though, that it was burdened with, uh, preview issues. (laughs) Oh Um, yeah. Well, it's quite the journey this film took. Yeah. And this, the plot is, uh, lifted from a Lord Tennyson poem, Enoch Arden, uh, which is a poem about a man whose wife was thought lost and presumed dead at sea until she returns. Um, and, and I wasn't able to find a direct connection cause it, it doesn't say based on the Lord Tennyson poem, but it's so clear. Like the last name is Arden. Uh, Nikki Arden is a character in the movie. So it's, it's clear that this was the influence. Um, now Kanan was brought on as director, but McCary did serve as producer and many of the pre-production conferences took place in the hospital with McCary still holding the reins as the producer. Um, McCary apparently recovered enough to visit the set two to three weeks into filming. Um, now, it's important, I guess, that we talk about the film first before talking about what happened at these preview screenings. So, I mean, this is done getting to show everything i think it's i i find it interesting that this is sort of considered a quasi sequel to the awful truth ryan um it's much more dramatic than the awful truth yeah well yeah um yeah i guess so it 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 has a little bit more uh dramatic heft to it mostly because of the way done plays into the plot and the plot of the movie is Cary Grant plays a man who um, uh, is having his wife declared legally dead so that he can marry his new his new wife and um, or his new his new beau. But his wife, who's been lost for seven years after having been shipwrecked, returns home and suddenly 
Cary Grant playing Nick Arden finds himself caught between his old life and his new life or his old wife and his new life or <laughs> his old wife and his new wife, his old life and his new life. Yeah, there we go. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Do I get that cookie now? <laughs> um, <laughs> now, um, uh, the the film plays off. Uh, would you call this screwball in the same way of the awful truth? I feel like it. It's, uh... In a way, I guess. I mean, the premise is screwball-y, for sure. But it feels like there's more slapstick involved here than anything yeah. else. Yeah, it's it feels like they shift away from that from from the things that made the awful truth so remarkable. Because there is a lot more uh, broader humor attached to this film. Um, whether that's the uh, involvement of uh, Pratt Falls, like you do see. <laughs> Irene Dunn takes a it takes a good old pratfall into the pool <laughs> um, in, in a scene that I think she saw Cary Grant collapsing in the chair in the awful truth and was just like, I can top that. I can I can fall back gracefully into a pool like a moron and, <laughs> and do just fine. Um, now, um, I think Dunn shows a lot of strength with how she plays cool compared to Carrie because something I noticed we've talked about before how um Carrie Grant in Arsenic and Old Lace is a very erratic uh and manic presence. I think this film sees him a bit just a dial back bit of that kind of performance because he is very erratic in this movie. <laughs> um Yeah he plays the uh I'm trying to have a new, I, I've moved on with my life, but my original wife comes back. So now I'm torn between these two women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I love that <laughs> when he finds out that she was marooned on this Island with a man and she tries to pass it off as a shoe salesman. And it's really, you know, the dashing Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott. <laughs> Yeah, Ryan, we're we're having this is an MCU of Golden Age Hollywood (laughs) that we're doing it today. Randolph Scott, not only a dashing leading man in comedies, musicals, and westerns, westerns. That's why they reference him in Blazing Saddles. Um, But um, a second lieutenant in World War (laughs) One fought in the Second Trench Mortar Battalion, but also. A dear friend to Cary Grant. So dear, in fact, that they lived together. <laughs> and I'm sure got into Ooh. plenty of... No, I'm sure got into plenty of uh, misadventures in Hollywood uh, smashing. Scandalous. I, no, well, we, we've we talked about this before. There, 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 are, there are the reports that Scott and Grant are, were in a relationship, which is... Even if they're true, I don't care. Like it's it's kind of irrelevant. It's just like, eh, it's just, the, the, but they also clearly love each other as friends. Period. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Now, like, but Randolph Scott. Let, let's talk about him in this film as a um as a as a plot point for Dunn's character. It provides this perfect kind of screwbally twist for uh how her character is trying to succeed at getting Nick back. Um. And I like watching Irene Dunn play nervous. I don't know why. 
there's something about her that feels genuinely nervous that other actors don't always pull off the best. Like when she's when she's like kind of struggling to uh, play it cool at the um, at the club that they're at where they run into Adam or Mm -hmm. um, uh, I should say Stephen Stephen Burkett, but. On the island, when they were shipwrecked together, they called each other Adam and Eve. Um, And, uh, like, she is just trying hard to put this back in Nick's hands. (laughs) As, like, no, this is Nick's idea of trapping me, and I'm just... I'm just kind of here to to make sense of it all myself. What? You're in love with me, Stephen? You want to now get married all of a sudden? Oh, no! Um, And, um... and, And... even if we have that revelation, though, prior to that, though, I love how the the character of Ellen is she's weathered from seven years of isolation from her family. So she has seemingly this outlook that Ellen before never had, which we never really get to see. But we can. Well, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah. You, yeah. When you meet her, though, she meets her daughter, you know, uh, <laughs> that she hasn't seen in seven. It's really, I mean, she's really great in this movie. It's really touching. And I don't know. I just, she's so good in the movie. I, I, it's one of my, and I know I've told you, it's one of my favorite hidden Cary Grant gems where it's sandwiched between, you know, uh, the awful truth, Gunga Dean and Philadelphia story and uh, his girl Friday. Yeah. So, he literally has some of the greatest films of all time sandwiched and this is sandwiched in between. And it's, I've, I've adore this movie. Yeah. I, I, I came away from this film calling it my favorite Irene Dunn performance. Ooh. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, so hear me out because there's an argument that could be made about this film that it shifts tones a lot. It shifts from, Sure. Screwball to slapsticky to sincere drama, um, or heartwarming drama, and I feel like the only reason it really works is because of Irene Dunn's performance, and it's and it's hard to fully acknowledge because there's so many things in this film that make it great besides just Irene Dunn. But Dunn is is the uh, foundation of this film, and I agree. I think um, you know uh, a lot of people think you know Cary Grant would be the first name on the marquee, but I think Dunn deservedly so gets the the number one spot. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's 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 one of those things where like occasionally I'll look at the billing. Like, the billing doesn't always matter to me at this point, like because I you know it, it. But looking at this. I look at it as I didn't think about it too much at first until I realized upon like my fourth viewing of it. Oh my God. Irene Dunn is the only reason this movie works in so many respects because, well, yeah, because you're not asking. I mean, I, you know, I love Cary Grant, but you're not asking a lot of him. No, you're, you're asking him to be jealous and funny. Yeah. You're asking him to be jealous, scattered, confused and conflicted. Um, but you're but you're asking things that we know he can do. Irene Dunn here is elevating the comedy performance in 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 several respects. Like 
her interaction with the children, it doesn't. There's there's moments where you think it's going to push into sappy territory, and then it pulls back just in time. Just in time, it pulls back, whether through the script or for what she's doing in the performance, and it saves the sappy, cheesy moment for the moment when the kids reveal, we know you're our mother. Yeah. And instead of her saying some kind of eloquent thing about family it's really just relegated to simple lines of like oh you rascals like you knew it was me the whole time like it's it feels grounded and she delivers on that grounded promise and she's also having to carry a front <laughs> carry um <laughs> she has to carry a front about not wanting to get back with nick to teach him a lesson by the end of the film um and this film you know, you know, really is uh, in a certain sense. Besides Ellen's involvement, this movie is also about trying to tell the truth, and within the conflict of Grant trying to tell the truth, we see Irene Dunn getting to play cool and composed, and the scene where he's in Sweet C to talk with her. Um, um, having left Bianca, played by Gail Patrick in Sweet A, um, she is just roasting the hell out of him. <laughs> like he, she is not allowing her. Uh, she is not, she is not allowing him a moment to breathe because he she's she's playing with him because rightfully so. She's like suddenly there's a new woman in the mix, and I love watching her kind of. A jab at Nick in his moment of chaos. <laughs> like, it's. You know, and let's give a shout out to the unsung hero of the hotel clerk in this oh, film. <laughs> oh, that po- Donald McBride, this poor fucking man. <laughs> Look. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I love the line where he's like, um, he's Nick's trying to explain what what's going on. He's like, it's very simple. It's as simple as ABC. Don't tell me it got somebody in sweet B. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, and then that scene where Grant is uh trying to rehearse how he's going to re- reveal it to Bianca, and the the clerk is around the corner, and it just holds yep. and holds, and he goes out to shake Bianca's hand, and he turns and sees the clerk. Oh, <laughs> uh, this isn't a Cary Grant episode, but goddamn it, Cary Grant's great in this movie too. He is. Um, but like, but, but Dunn, I think her character does well at pushing that manic momentum that Carrie has to carry throughout the film. Um, there I go again with puns. Um, uh, but, uh, Dunn also has, uh, a unique, uh, a, a unique trait in this film in the, in the notion that, you know, think about it. She's been away for seven years. I think I find it interesting how she manages to carry a lot of that uh, dramatic weight in such a light manner. Yeah, well, too, it's also, she never, um, I mean, she never got over coming home and seeing her family again. And that weight, she carries it the whole movie. Yeah. Even though when she tries to make, you know, Carrie Grant, Grant jealous 
uh, you know, with whomever or when he's daydreaming about Randolph Scott doing a dive, you know, there is the prevailing that she just wants to get back to her life. And that's what she thought she was getting back to. Mm-hmm. And now she's thrust into this. Well, everyone think now I'm legally declared dead. Mm-hmm. My husband has moved on and is going to marry a different woman. And I, I think that's carried throughout the, uh, her performance. It's not just comedy. It's she bears the weight of what's happening to her throughout the film. Yeah. And, and, and keeping in mind that like the whole idea of, you know, I've been shipped right away from seven years and now I'm back. It seems on its surface like a like a generic uh, formulated comedy plot, but it doesn't play that way. It plays sincerely. Be- and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're talking about the whole le- declared legally dead thing. The The courtroom sequences, I think, are the key to this film. Like, are, are, are a good key to this film because they they le- they weigh in the stakes in a comical way that keeps the 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 funny momentum chugging along where it could otherwise ground it to a halt because we get that first one where the judge played by Granville Bates is trying to make sense of this first case and then by midway through the movie he's brought forth the second case of Nick's been arrested for bigamy but because Ellen is declared legally, because Ellen is known as alive, so she need he needs to be uh, absolved of bigamy, so that he can then divorce Bianca and marry Ellen, even though he even says, "I don't know what to make of this," which is Ellen's cue that he still hasn't made up his mind on who he wants to be with, um, and. In the background, you have Ellen just making jokes to the judge. And I love the whole mulligan stew joke. And the judge goes, that'll be $25. $25 for a joke. And then she remembers, I'm legally dead. I don't have to pay you. <laughs> and then the judge goes like, well, I'm going to declare this woman legally alive and get my money. <laughs> um and uh, so, like, you get to watch Ellen here in the process. She knows the stakes. She understands the stakes. But Dunn plays it as, like, this is a mere formality to get back to my life. So I'm just going to have fun with this. Like, it's it's a brilliant move on her part. Um, yeah. It's just it's a calm, cool approach until until Nick drops that bombshell of, like, well, I don't know what I want. I'm just I'm carrying grand. <laughs> Um, and, um, and we, and we talk about Gail Patrick as Bianca, who's meanwhile in these courtroom scenes kind of relegated to the sidelines. But if it weren't for her, we wouldn't have that great second courtroom scene. Um, let's talk a little bit about these previews screenings. So they showed the film a number of times. Um, and after about five reels, McCary would recall, uh, the picture took a dip, and for about two reels or more, it wasn't as funny as what preceded it. It was a lot of unraveling of a tricky plot. And they did another preview where that confirmed, like, basically, point for point, that's where the film started breaking down. He told Bogdan- he told um, an interview that was later uh, put in Bogdanovich's book, he told, the- he-, he told Bogdanovich, so the cast was dismissed, 
The writers went home, the director went back to New York, and I sat there with the cutter trying to figure out what to do to save the picture. Then I got the wildest idea I ever had. There was a judge in the opening who was very funny, and he dropped out of the picture, and I decided to bring him back. What we actually did was to tell the judge our story problems in the picture and have him comment on them. And it was truly great. It became the outstanding thing of the picture. And he's right. It uh, it is mm-hmm. it is a saving grace of the film. Now, part of the legal jargon that was thrown into the mix dialogue-wise was through Gail Patrick. Because Gail Patrick, in addition to being a experienced actress, um, had studied law at University of Alabama. <laughs> and she joined she joined the acting profession on a lark. <laughs> Which one does? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm a successful lawyer, but I'll give this acting thing a shot. Say, I'm Gail Patrick. Nice. (laughs) Um, Now, she did did bring up something that I kind of wish happened, but I don't think it really matters. Um, She she apparently suggested that Bianca and Steven end up together at the end. And apparently, director Garson Kanan said that she was going too far desiring that. I'm like, I don't think that's very fair because Bianca as a character is very, um, uh, is, is beaten and berated throughout this movie. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's so heartbreaking to watch at points because she's funny in it, but she's like, when she's crying to her mother over the phone about like, and then he wouldn't touch me and then he wouldn't tell the kids about me and then like, (laughs) you're just, your heart's breaking for Bianca. Like it is. It, the only reason you're not fully on her side is because she does play it with a tinge of um, snootiness that Dunn is able to counter with her silly uh, uh, outlook on things, especially when she's playing this southern fr- <laughs> this southern childhood friend character. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I don't know why, but anytime she's breaking into a southern accent, Irene Dunn does sound relatively hilarious. <laughs> Like it's, it's such a typical Southern accent, but she just, she commands it with confidence. (laughs) Um, And then let's talk about the ending of the movie because we get almost a shot for shot recreation of the madness of the awful truth. But the difference is that it's Nick's in the attic and she's in the master bedroom and the f- the 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 way he's trying to slink back into the bed has to do with the mattress not being comfortable. And at one point she's like, "Well, you can bring up the mattress." <laughs> and he lugs that mattress up and then it falls over and he's freaking out and by the end of this film, it talks about like things not getting wrapped up till Christmas. Nick goes back up to the attic. We hear a bunch of crumb, uh, rumbling around and crashing. And then suddenly he comes down in a Santa Claus suit. As one would. Is this a Christmas movie, Ryan? Uh, I mean, technically, well, I mean, <laughs> it's not centered around Christmas, but obviously there's a Christmas element to it. So. <laughs> We're gonna we're we're gonna anoint it Christmas movie. If if Psycho can be a Christmas movie, my favorite wife can be a Christmas movie. <laughs> not that's what the, I'm saying. Not in the same way the Bishop's wife is, but in the way <laughs> we all in the way Christmas is always in our hearts. 
Also, how comes Cary Grant as Santa Claus isn't a gif? Why, that makes no fucking sense to me. I can't find that on the internet. We need to make it right. We're going to make it right. Presents, 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 presents. Presents, presents, presents. That's, yes. Oh, my God. Did we just create a gif? We just <laughs> we just created a gif. Ryan, we, I'm going to make this gif happen. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to take a clip of my favorite wife, and stick it on the, stick it in premiere, and make a gif. Um, now, uh, the film was well-received. Uh, very well received. Uh, McCary uh, and screenwriters Bella and Sam Spiewak were nominated for the Oscar for Best Story. Roy Webb, um, RKO uh, staff composer, was nominated for Best Score. And Best Art Direction nomination went to Van Nest Polgaze and Mark Lee Kirk. Um, and by the way, not a nomination, but the editor on this film was, um, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, Ryan, Robert Wise. Robert Wise. Ever heard hmm. of him? Sounds familiar, but I don't want to say. Yeah. Do you do you think um, at his place the hills are alive with the sound of music? Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, yes, the film uh, ends up being a triumphant success, uh, and uh, the film got adapted. Um, for radio multiple times. Um, there is a 60-minute version of the Lux Radio Theater from December 9th, 1940, with Gail Patrick coming back. Uh, the Screen Guild Theater had a 30-minute adaptation with Dunn reprising her role. Um, and then Grant and Dunn reprised their roles together for a December 7th, 1950 broadcast of Screen Director's Playhouse. Um, uh, the film is... Uh, noted by Richard B. Jewell, who chronicled the RKO studios for the RKO story, uh, said that both in theme and execution, My Favorite Wife was a quasi-sequel to The Awful Truth. The film peaked about two-thirds along the way and began to wear thin near the end, yet still contained a number of inspired scenes. Um, I, I think it's fair. You know, it's it's not a, it's it's not a, uh, it's not The Awful Truth. But it doesn't need to be. Yeah. Like it's it's got its own little legs carrying it. Uh, this film was the second biggest hit for RKO in 1940, um, coming just before Kitty Foyle, um, and made a $505,000 profit, which is good because RKO could use that money because they were about to flush it into a, a movie called uh, Citizen Kane. Um, I don't yeah. think that movie will ever uh, make any waves, but uh, they needed it. It was a big thing for them, you know? Um, and... Uh, now, this film was also remade a bunch um, in several different ways. This was the f this the remake of this film in 1962 was to be called Something's Gotta Give with Marilyn Monroe, Dean Martin and Sid Charisse. There is footage that survives, but this was to have been Marilyn Monroe's next movie after The Misfits. And with Marilyn Monroe's death, that was never going to happen. A year later, though, it's remade as Move Over Darling with Doris Day and James Garner, which I've never seen, but I want to watch that because it's noted that they reference this movie directly in the movie. <laughs> um, so it's like the rumor has it uh, to the graduate. <laughs> um, uh, and then um, I didn't realize this until my girlfriend noticed this because she watched this with me. That elevator scene. When she comes into uh, the 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 lodge or the hotel and um, spots Nick 
and then Nick spots her as he's in the elevator and he leans to make sure it's her. That's shot for shot redone in The Parent Trap in 1998 with Dennis Quaid <laughs> playing the oh. doing the Cary Grant. If you look at it shot for shot, it's virtually the same. Um, and so like it's the film has carried on its um uh, uh its influence into films of today but with with the Irene Dunn of it all we've talked about two of her key films here that aren't the awful truth or Cimarron um how do you think Irene Dunn influenced the generation of acting we see today Ryan um I think she did it in a way of that you don't have to be pigeonholed into a specific genre. Mm -hmm. You can do it, anything you want to do. And she did. She didn't feel obligated to do dramas or comedies or even musicals. She would sometimes combine them all or sometimes she would break your heart, you know? And I think by her doing that, it gave everybody confidence that they can do other films. Do you and, Two of your, two of your favorite modern actors come to mind when it comes to that when it comes to that affirmation, um, Emily Blunt and Kate Blanchett. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they don't they they'll do anything. I mean, they're they've both been in sci fi, they've both been in horror, they've done drama, they've done comedy, they both can sing. I yeah, I mean, it's it paves the way for everybody, mm -hmm. and you know. She's just not a pretty face. I would put her against anybody. Yeah. it's And it's also like, it, I think it's, she brings forth a testament to acting that still exists, which is if you are training under all auspices, then your career is going to flourish in a way that others won't necessarily, especially today. Um, I think that there are actors that can be relegated into those roles they are stereotyped for. And, I, I wish they weren't because you can tell that they can do more, but they aren't given all those opportunities. But Irene Dunn, especially I think being independent in her era means she could choose what she wanted to do. And she chose to challenge herself more often than not, mm -hmm. which is, which is, I think a stunning thing that gets overlooked. We have actors like Olivia, uh, Olivia de Havilland and Betty Davis that trailblaze very important matters, especially Olivia when it comes to, finally breaking the contract system that Dunn herself refused to be a part of. Um, but Dunn did it in subtler ways. She just kept working up until the moment she decides to stop. Uh, she, uh, she, she really just tries to challenge herself in different ways. She'll go back to genres she's done before. Um, she'll cap off trilogies that she starts with Charles Boyer with Love Affair and When Tomorrow Comes with a movie like Together Again. Like she'll, mm -hmm. she'll, she'll dip back and forth into places she's been before and she keeps her. Well, and love affair is a drama a comedy and she sings in it. I'm just saying. Yeah. No, Don was able to kind of work in all of those, in all of those arenas to a way that I think makes her stand out the way not every actress can in golden age Hollywood. Not every actor is mm -hmm. able to pull off both screwball comedy and sincere drama. Carol Lombard could do it, but she wasn't given the same opportunities that Irene Dunn gave herself. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like when you look at how Carol Lombard would try for drama, the audience wouldn't go for it. It's not to say she's bad in it. It's just the audience wasn't going for it. 
but done clearly res- was something that the audience clearly responded to. And I think that's a testament to somebody just, you know, t- grabbing what they wanted by the reins and doing it. Um, and she, 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 I, I wish that she had stuck around longer, but I also wonder how much of a difference it would have made um, to her career. Cause there's there's the argument that if she stayed around longer, she would have like tarnished her career further or whatever by like starring in things that weren't up to speed with what what the ti- changing tide would have been. Um, I think she still would have been as popular as Cary Grant. I just don't know what the films yeah. would have been. Um, I don't know. I mean, she, I mean, she kind of did what Cary Grant did. They both kind of just said, you know what? I made enough movies. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know? and but unlike Cary Grant, she did uh, find herself on television a lot. Um, she, yeah, she did stuff for General Electric Theater. Um, she was she did the um, uh, uh, sus- episodes of the Ford Theater in Suspense. Um, obviously, we talked about What's My Line, um, and as we said before, she's in the Jack Benny program from December 6, nineteen fifty three. You can look that up on YouTube, by the way. Should. Um, um, and uh, she was also um, not above coming on radio. She did a lot of stuff with Lux, uh, the Screen Guild Theater. Only thing I wish she had done on radio that um, I never got to hear was um, an episode of Jack's radio show. Um, I would have loved to hear the vocal performance because I think there is you know, obviously a difference between vocal and visual. Um, I, I kind of wish she had done a radio version with Jack, but... I'm glad we got the television version, which mm-hmm. if you turn off, if you turn off the the video on that episode, it, you can get an approximation of it. I think certain gestures in her performance are, ta- are attached to seeing her reaction, especially when she's on the phone with Jack. Um, but yeah, she would later in her life be honored by the Kennedy center, but she wouldn't attend. She didn't attend the ceremony. Um, I don't know if there's a reason for that. I never found out if there was a reason for that or not. Well, I don't know. I didn't. I don't know either. I mean, she was still alive at that point. Um, yeah. But um, she received many honors throughout her later career. She got honorary law degrees from Loyola University, Seattle University, St. Mary's College. Um, she uh, she received the Colorado Women of Achievement Award. Um, so shout out Colorado! Woohoo! Um, and, uh, additionally, as she said, she worked ver- with various charities and was a philanthropist later in her life. Um, her, her legacy today stems from, um, uh, working with, uh, w- working with the various charities that she helped, uh, inspire. Um, her legacy though, she does have in her hometown of Madison, there's a two-sided marker erected in Dunn's childhood home. So people will never forget where she came from, and nobody will forget that name. Um, she unfortunately um, uh, passed away from our realm uh, in 1990 at the age of 91. Um, but she 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 led a comfortable life. She's a actress that is virtually devoid of scandal. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Can find couldn't find a thing. Couldn't find a damn thing. I've always only heard nice things about her, and Cary Grant said 
She's the sweetest and best smelling actress he's ever worked with. The best smelling. You you know something or two about best smelling actors. I mean, I'm just, I do. Yeah, James Marston. <laughs> James Marston and Irene Gunn are in league with each other. <laughs> so when James Marston, if he when he dies and he goes up to whatever great beyond exists, um, he he'll be in Irene Dunn's camp of best smelling people yes. up in the great beyond. Um, Ryan, is there anything else you want to uh, wrap up our discussion about Hi- Irene Dunn with? Like any any thoughts or uh, either about the two films we talked about or a film you can recommend for people who want more done in their life? Um, the thing I would say is I would seek out her films and, and watch them and see someone who's an incredible actor at, in their craft. Um, I, I would, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but if I would say go and see Penny Serenade, which she also, um, where Cary Grant was nominated for an Oscar for that one. And so is she, um, if I remember correctly, maybe I give that wrong. Um, mm. but she's astounding in that. And that movie deals with where James Stewart said, you know, she's, the queen of the weepies. I mean, you're going to cry in that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that poster I, I would, doesn't sell that movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, so I would say, go see that. Um, I'm going to track down Theodora goes wild and I'm going to continue my journey through um, her filmography because she's, like I said, she's my favorite golden age actress and she's just so great. Yeah. And uh, on my front, I uh, I'll I'll certainly start beefing up my Irene Dunn knowledge, but I do recommend the Silver Cord if you can find it. Um, if you're a Patreon subscriber of Secret History of Hollywood, it is available there. Um, and it, it the movie's insane. She's great in it, but the movie's insane. Um, so it's fun to watch her kind of work in that pre-code era. Um, from from my front, I'm I'm very happy we were able to talk about Irene Dunn because we were able to talk about a. An actress of the era who is often overlooked in the grander scope of your Betty Davises, your Joan Crawford, your de Havilland's, um, people who seemingly spoke louder. Um, I think Dunn spoke softly, and I, I, I admire her, her her subtlety in that regard. She only had like a 20-year span in this business before she left, but virtually everything in her catalog is a classic, especially once you get uh, to showboat and beyond. And I think that's a testament to her ability to choose her own destiny, which is not something that every actress was afforded in that era. And she took a lot of chances going down that path and proved time and again, that she was more than worthy of that decision. Um, And as far as I want to bring it back to showboat for a second. So with this show, we, we have been leading to discussions about films like showboat for a while um, through various talking points, whether they've been discussions of Eddie Rochester Anderson or discussions of racism in uh, golden age Hollywood. And I think showboat will eventually at some point get its own episode dedicated to breaking it down beyond just the discussion that Ryan and I have, because both of the films we talked about have a lot of discussion points around them, but Showboat, I think, has so much wrapped in it that it, it will get an extended look at at some point. But what we talked about today was very important, especially on the front of Ropes and because the, the, the progress 
that is made today is still as slow comparatively because we still have so many other things to come uh, to leap over when it comes to proper representation and respect towards different races and cultures in the film industry. So to be able to talk about Showboat and to show where it soars as well as falls, I think that the only way I could have done it was was with somebody like Ryan who shared a passion for Paul Robeson with me that I was able to dive into on my own front. And I wanted to thank you, buddy, for bringing fourth heavy chatter to the show like this because this isn't the last time we're going to be discussing this because unfortunately it's ridden throughout golden age Hollywood. Um, But we found a film that does carry intriguing optimism in it, but it's not without its immense flaws. And I think that discussing how Robeson stood above and beyond those racist tropes of the era was very important to uh, break into because he, you know, this, this episode was dedicated to Dunn, but I think in a certain way, we also needed to discuss ropes and on this show. And I'm glad that it was able to happen under these auspices with his most famous role so that we could then talk about other films that he's done down the line that aren't as noted or aren't as respected as Showboat is because Showboat carries prestige to this day. But I don't know if Emperor Jones has the same uh, connotations attached to it. And I want to learn more about that. Um, But every journey has a start and this was the start of it, buddy. So I want to thank you for helping me start on that journey with it. Oh, yeah, no, I, um, it's, yeah. And I was just thinking um, if you're looking for another kind of, sad movie but it's really fun is a one called a guy named joe that stars spencer tracy and her um that i i adore as well yeah I, I i'll have to check a man named joe that sounds good I, I i like and i like spencer tracy a lot we've talked about him before but not we haven't talked about him in his element yet we've talked about him near the end of his life <laughs> so i think he needs he needs a more lively expose um, but Ryan, thank you. Um, do you have anything to plug? I know what you're going to plug, but do you have anything to plug? Um, no, just, uh, <laughs> make sure <laughs> no podcasts that you do. <laughs> yeah, no, just, uh, I, I'm on a podcast called real nerds podcast. If you want to listen and you like movies, please do. Cause I'm there every week. Wonderful. And yes, I am on that show too. Uh, and you can check out real nerds each week. And um, hopefully we will have seen all of you lovely folks at Denver Fan Expo, and hopefully we will see you again next year there as well. Um, thank you again, Ryan, for coming on. Uh, and this is going thank to you. this isn't going to be the end of your Ballyhoo appearances. Obviously, you and I have talked about it. We want to do Dick Van Dyke on the program. Oh yeah, um, got to get Brad involved. Yeah, we're going to get Brad and Ryan in the room together at some point to talk about the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, to bring a little TV into the Ballyhoo. Um, Sweet. Uh, probably will fall in line with the debut of television under John Matthews with uh, Tales of Tomorrow. So we're gonna we're gonna start introducing this newfangled medium called television. But I will say that Brad's already sent me his favorite episodes in preparation for this. So oh, there you go. So he's or he, well, you give him a you give him a top anything list. He'll be ahead of us at each point of the day. 
I still owe him a 2002 list. Um, yeah, you got to get that going. I know, I know. You know, it's we cool. all know Spider-Man's number one. It's cool. Oh, what about some hobbits? Hmm? What about some hobbits? Mm, maybe. What about some hobbits? I'll tell you right now. I, I, I will not be as notorious as I was in 92 because Gangs of New York is on my list, but it's not going to be my number one. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I got a funny joke from uh, Carol Hart who saw Top Gun and she said, well, I guess I know what Zach's number six movie of the year is going to be. <laughs> He got burned by Bur- someone's mom. Uh, well, if there's any mom I want to get burned by, it's Carol Hart. So <laughs> like, I think that's the statement anybody can make in their lives. Yeah. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. Coming up on the program, uh, we are going to be going to the world of Akira Kurosawa, but not one of his more notable films. We're going to be talking about a film that I've never seen before, but I got recommended to me by a guest. Um, named Rashmi Menon, uh, who will be joining us. She's a friend of mine from Film Club, and she wants to talk some Kurosawa, so we're going to talk some Kurosawa. Um, but until cool. all of that, and until next time, folks, stay classic, cool, and good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Ha ha ha!